Book Three, Chapter Five, Part One of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two by Henry Charles Lee. Book Three, Jurisdiction, Chapter Five, Part One, Appeals to Rome. So long as the acts of the Spanish Inquisition were not final, but were subject to revision by the Roman Curia, its jurisdiction was incomplete. To emancipate itself from this, it struggled for more than two centuries, aided unreservedly by all the power of the Spanish crown. This long protracted and intricate contest is full of interest and merits a somewhat detailed investigation. Soon after the Inquisition commenced its work, complaints of its remorseless cruelty poured in upon the sovereigns. They sent around, as we are told, certain conscientious prelates to investigate and report, who informed them that four thousand houses had been abandoned in Andalusia. But this seems only to have inflamed Isabella's ardor, and the business of vindicating the faith was prosecuted with undiminished energy. The only refuge of the victims was the Holy See, which had always been open to appeals from the sentences of the Inquisition. Papal predominance had its foundation in the universal supreme jurisdiction, original and appellate, of Rome in all matters of faith and the unlimited area of affairs contingent on faith. This had been gradually acquired during the Dark Ages and was strenuously upheld, as it was the source of wealth as well as of power and without it the bishop of rome would speedily shrink to his original primacy of honor that he should divest himself of it was not to be expected especially for the benefit of inquisitors whose jurisdiction was a delegation from him and whose claim to superiority over bishops was based on the functions of the latter being merely ordinary while theirs were apostolic it is true that Nicholas V, in his projected Castilian Inquisition of 1451, had granted jurisdiction without appeal, but this could have been withdrawn at any time, and the whole attempt had been soon forgotten, that no allusion was ever made to it in the subsequent controversy. In the old Inquisition, appeals to the Pope were recognized, but it was an intricate and costly process, only possible to those familiar with canon law and, as the victims then were mostly peasants or ascetic missionaries, it was rarely employed, and still more rarely successful. Now, however, the situation was wholly different. The class assailed consisted largely of men of wealth or learning, merchants, bankers, lawyers, high officials, theologians, and prelates, able to command the services of skillful canonists and ready to sacrifice a portion of their fortunes to save their persons from the stake and their estates from confiscation. The curia of the period, moreover, was notorious for shameless veniality, a place where everything was for sale, from cardinalettes to pardons, and where the supreme jurisdiction of the papacy was exploited to the utmost. It did not take long for the keen-witted conversos to recognize that the mercy denied them in Spain could be bought in the open market of Rome in the curia which had mourned the lost opportunity of sharing in the confiscations, welcomed the prospect of selling exemptions from confiscation. 
Everything, therefore, pointed to an exercise of the supreme appellate jurisdiction of the Holy See, which would seriously limit the activity of the Spanish Inquisition, or at least would confine it to those whose property rendered them unprofitable subjects of persecution. Ferdinand soon became alive to the situation and manifested little reverence for the papacy in his resolute resistance to the protection which it sold to all applicants. The earliest recourse was naturally to the papal penitentiary. It had long been in the habit of selling confessional letters, empowering any confessor whom the purchaser might select to absolve him from all sins, including those reserved to the Holy See. Originally, these were understood to be good only in the form of conscience. But the further step was easily taken of making them effective also in the judicial forum, thus anticipating or annulling the action of the courts and selling immunity for crime as well as pardon for sin. There was no difficulty in obtaining such letters for anyone, and they were sought by the conversos as a means of protection in advance and of setting aside sentences after conviction. In the appendix will be found a specimen issued December 4, 1481, by the major penitentiary to Francisco Fernandez of Seville and his wife and mother. It purports to be granted by the direct command of the Pope and authorizes the recipient to select any confessor who, after secret abjuration, can absolve him for all acts of heresy, apostasy, relapse, and dogmatism, and annul all sentences by whomsoever pronounced after trial and conviction reintegrating him into the church, removing all stain of heresy, restoring him to all his rights, and releasing him from all punishment, only imposing on him salutary penance, which, at that period, was understood to be a money payment for the benefit of the poor, i.e., the church or its members. A final clause grants the further faculty of overcoming all opposition by the use of censures under papal authority. It was impossible for Ferdinand and Torquemada to allow the Inquisition to be reduced to impotence by the speculative activity of the Curia in selling such exemptions, which were not only good for the future, but had a retroactive effect in annulling its acts. No reverence for the Holy See could restrain them from visiting their wrath on all who were concerned in rendering effective this purchasable clemency. We have a glimpse at the methods adopted by both sides in a notorial act, evidently part of a process to set aside a papal letter of a somewhat different kind, and to punish those engaged in its use. The narrative showing that all concerned felt that they were incurring serious perils. The notary, Anton Pelaez, deposes that in Ceres de la Frontera he received from the Duke of Medina Sidonia a letter of April 16, 1482, calling him to San Lucar de Barmeda to draw certain business papers. He went, and while engaged on them in the house of Juan Mateos on April 20th at 2 p.m., a messenger summoned him to the Duke, whom he found in the company with the Duchess, the Teniente de Bora, Fray Tomas, prior of the Order of Santa Maria de Barmeda, and others. Then entered Juan Fernandez of Seville, the Duke's contador, or auditor, carrying a bowl with a lead seal, said to be from the Pope, Sixtus IV, 
and ordered Palaez to read it to the prior. He was alarmed and refused, but finally yielded to the entreaties of the duke and duchess. Then Fray Tomas refused to accept it, as he had been inhibited verbally by the inquisitors, and promised to produce the inhibition in writing within eight days. The duchess left the room in anger, but in a quarter of an hour, Fernandez brought Fernando de Truxillo, prior to the Universidad of Ceres, and not of the Church of San Salvador, as described in the bull. The duke told him that this made no difference, and urged him to accept it, throwing his arms around him and promising that he would expose his whole rank and dignity to make good whatever he might suffer in person and property. Troxillo accepted the bull with the greatest reverence and kissed it. Then, as apostolic judge under it, he ordered Juan Mateos, cura and vicar of San Lucar, to absolve Ferrandez and his wife of any sentence of excommunication, interdict, suspension, etc., placed on him by the inquisitors, on his giving security, which was promptly furnished by Gonzalo Perais, Lu Perais, and Ferrand Riquel, swearing that Ferrandez would stand to the mandates of the church as required in the bull. Thereupon, Troxillo, as apostolic judge, ordered Juan Mateos to absolve Ferrandez and his wife, which was duly performed. The duke's lawyers drew up an inhibition to the inquisitors, which the deponent engrossed. The duke wanted Troxillo to sign it, but the deponent privately advised him not to do so until he should consult his counsel at Ceres, and, whether he did so or not, the deponent could not say. This gives us an inside view of the struggle to escape the Inquisition, which was going on in every corner of the land. It was useless for these papal letters were disregarded and the purchasers could look for no redress from the Curia, for Pope Sixtus had no scruple in abandoning his customers. It was a lucrative business, this disposing of exemptions and then allowing them to be annulled for consideration. Both sides thus contributed to the papal treasury, and, as it all came from the conversos in the end, the curia indirectly got its share of the confiscations, and the Inquisition was but nominally restricted. One device for accomplishing this is revealed in a Crusada indulgence granted March 8th, 1483, ostensibly in aid of the war with Granada. But, as Sixtus bargained for one-third of the proceeds, his share was a sufficient inducement for sacrificing the purchasers of his confessional letters. A special clause of the indulgence empowered any confessor to absolve the possessor of it, the price being six reales, for killing or despoiling those seeking the Roman court or for preventing the execution of papal letters, or for forbidding notaries to draw up acts concerning such letters, or for detaining them from those to whom they belonged, all of which was evidently framed to allow the sovereigns to annul the papal briefs in any way they deemed best. Yet, while Sixtus thus was content, for a moderate compensation, to permit those who were seeking his court to be detained or slain, and to have his letters contemptuously annulled. Yet, when their market was threatened by the assertion that the penitentiary was only a court of conscience, and its absolutions were good only in the interior forum, his indignation 
burst forth in a bull of may ninth fourteen eighty four stigmatizing all such opinions as contumacious and sacrilegious the penitentiary he declared could grant absolutions good in either form and those for the judicial form were good in both spiritual and secular courts this monstrous assumption which claimed for the penitentiary the power to anticipate or set aside the judgment of every criminal court in europe for the benefit of culprits who could pay the moderate fee demanded for its letters was not merely a temporary policy adopted by sixtus for the occasion having once been asserted it was persisted in paul the third july fifth fifteen forty nine confirmed the bull of fourteen eighty four and subjected to the anathema of the bull in Cheney Domini all who called in question the validity of such letters. When confined to the form of conscience, they were sealed and addressed to the confessor. When intended for the judicial form, they were patent. As Paul died November tenth, 1549, before the publication of this brief, it was confirmed and issued February twenty second, 1550, by Julius Third. It was the settled purpose of the Holy See of the period to continue this profitable business of selling pardons so long as purchasers could be found for them. They continued to plague the Inquisition, and we shall see what stern measures Ferdinand found necessary for their suppression. Yet Ferdinand was justified and the curious self-condemned for when the Roman Inquisition was reorganized and found its operations similarly impeded by the letters of the penitentiary it ordered september twenty sixth fifteen fifty its subordinates to pay no attention to them meanwhile the struggle continued in spain isabella applied in fourteen eighty two to sixtus to give her inquisitors power to pronounce final judgments that should not be subject to revision or appeal he replied february twenty third fourteen eighty three that he would take counsel with the sacred college the result of which was a bull of May 25th, in which he conferred on Inigo Manrique, Archbishop of Seville, appellate jurisdiction from the inquisitors, deputizing him in place of the Pope for the Spanish dominions. This expedient brought no relief to the conversos. The inquisitors paid no respect to it, and would-be appellants found that it was not safe to go to Seville for revision of their cases by the archbishop. It was the same with the letters of absolution that continued to be issued. They were disregarded, and many fugitives who had procured them found on their return that they had been burnt in effigy during their absence, and that the document on which they relied was of no avail. They needed something more, and Sixtus was nothing loath to grant it. As early as August 2nd, he followed the bull of May 25th with another, for which we may safely assume that the conversos paid roundly, for in it he evoked to Rome all pending cases of appeal. He ordered the Spanish bishops to protect at all hazards the bearers of papal letters of absolution, even to the invocation of the secular arm, and he entreated Ferdinand and Isabella to show mercy to their subjects as they hoped for mercy from God. Whatever was paid for this was money vainly thrown into the bottomless sea of the Curia. Eleven days later, with shameless effrontery, Sixtus wrote to the sovereigns 
that it had been issued without proper deliberation, and that he suspended it. This reinstated Manrique as appellate judge, and Juan of Seville, who had carried the previous brief to the Bishop of Evora for multiplying, was brought with his companions before the archbishop, who condemned them. The gold of the victims was vainly pitted against the unalterable will of the sovereigns, for the Holy See had no scruple in selling exemptions and abandoning the purchasers. The delegation to the Archbishop Manrique by no means inferred that Sixtus relinquished his own profitable appellate jurisdiction, and, to encourage appeals, it was necessary to manifest indignation when the inquisitors rated the papal action at its true value. How little they respected it is manifested in a brief of July 4, 1484, addressed to the inquisitors Miguel de Morillo and Juan de San Martin, reciting that the dean of Mondoñedo, two canons of Seville, and several others whom they were prosecuting and whose property they had sequestered, had appealed from them, that Sixtus had referred the cases to the bishop of Terracina and some of the auditors of the sacred palace, at whose instance the inquisitors had been ordered to cease the proceedings, to grant absolution ad cautelam, and to lift the sequestration which deprived the parties of the means to carry on the appeal. That the inquisitors had not only flatly refused obedience and had kept possession of the property, but had constrained the appellants, under oath and threat of censures, not to prosecute or appeal or even write to Rome, on the ground that they had the jurisdiction and would render judgment. Wherefore Sixtus now pronounces null and void all proceedings since the issue of the inhibitory order and prohibits further action under threat of excommunication. The sequestration is to be lifted and all the papers are to be sent to Rome. There was no reason why this should command obedience more than the previous order, and we may feel sure that the appellants fared no better in consequence. The case has interest only as a specimen of innumerable others, which were bringing an abundant harvest to the officials of the Curia without affording relief to the victims, who were like a shuttlecock between two bottled dories, yielding sport to the players as they were driven from one to the other. Archbishop Manrique's position as appellate judge must also have been lucrative, for on his death in 1485, the succession was eagerly sought for and was obtained by the papal vice-chancellor Rodrigo Borgia. But Ferdinand had had experience of him in Valencia, and the sovereigns remonstrated so effectually that he was obliged to withdraw in favor of their nominee, Cardinal Hurtado de Mendoza, Bishop of Palencia. Sixtus IV had died August 12, 1484, to be succeeded by Innocent VIII. The Inquisition might hope for an improvement, but was resolved to resist with greater energy than before if the new Pope should imitate his predecessor. In a series of instructions issued December 6, 1484, Torquemada provided for a resident agent in Rome whose expenses were to be defrayed from the confiscations. He complained of the extraordinary and illegal letters so profusely granted by Sixtus, and announced that the sovereigns would suspend the operation of such letters, but that action would be withheld until it should be seen whether Innocent continued a practice so prejudicial. Innocent 
must already have given evidence that his methods were the same as those of Sixtus. For in less than ten days, Ferdinand issued, December 15th, a savage pragmatica, far more decisive than Torquemada had forecast, for it decreed death and confiscation for all who should use such letters, whether emanating from the Pope or his subordinates, unless they should have received the royal exequatur and all notaries and scriveners who should act under them or take transcripts of them were deprived of their offices. As a matter of course, the change of pontiffs worked no change in the lucrative business, except that perhaps under Innocent the practice of taking money and betraying those who paid it became more unblushing than before, and promises to both sides were made and broken with still greater facility. To this end, care was taken to maintain the papal jurisdiction, for when the new pope was asked to confirm or renew Torquemada's commission, and power was asked for him to disregard the exemptions issued in blank for names to be filled in, and absolutions granted on false confessions, and other abuses impeding in every way the Inquisition, Innocent turned a deaf ear, and the commission was only renewed, not enlarged. Then the sovereigns assumed the power denied to Torquemada and issued circular letters, July 29, 1485, addressed to all the ecclesiastical authorities, reciting how, to the scandal of religion, disregard of the royal preeminence, and damage to the rise, certain parties obtained bulls, rescripts, provisions, and confessional letters from Sixtus IV and Innocent VIII to protect themselves in their crime. As it is not to be supposed that the popes would do this knowingly, all such letters are suspended until the papal intention, after due information, can be ascertained and obeyed. Meanwhile, no such briefs are to be enforced until after the submission to the sovereigns for their approval. It is not easy to follow the rapid tergiversations of the pope, for the pledges given to either side were impartially violated almost as soon as given, the only explanation being that both sides could get what briefs they desired provided they were willing to pay what was demanded. For a while, the influence of Ferdinand and Isabella prevailed, and, in a solemn repetition of Torquemada's commission, April 24, 1486, Innocent directed that all appeals should be made to him and not to the Holy See. Still more emphatic was a disgraceful brief of November 10, 1487, by which he declared inoperative all the letters issued by the penitentiary, whose purchasers he thus surrendered to the inquisitors, whom he authorized to proceed in spite of the inhibitions contained in them. Possibly he may have recognized that this breach of faith was likely to damage the market by destroying confidence for the ink was scarce dry in his brief when he issued another, November 27th, ordering that, when such letters were produced, they, or authentic copies of them, should be sent with details of the case, and that, until his decision was announced, proceedings should be suspended. Ferdinand, thereupon, forbade the inquisitors to accept such letters, notwithstanding which their issue continued without remission, for on May 17, 1488, Innocent declares that they should be invalid unless presented within a month of that date. Simultaneous with this was an elaborate bull of the same date, 
doubtless procured by the conversos of Aragon, addressed to the Bishop of Majorca, reciting the daily appeals from the Kingdom of Aragon, which were committed to judges in the Curia, who issued inhibitions to the inquisitors. As this impeded the Inquisition, the Pope evoked to himself all pending cases and committed them to the bishop to be decided without appeal, his commission continuing during the papal pleasure. We may reasonably doubt whether Ferdinand permitted the bishop to exercise these functions. Even if he did so, the conversos profited little, for the good bishop died in about six months and there is no trace of the appointment of a successor. Yet when Ferdinand wanted to save those whom he favored from the Inquisition, he sometimes had recourse to procuring for them papal letters to which he granted his exequatur. He did this for his treasurer, Gabriel Sanchez, and for the vice-chancellor of Aragon, Alonso de la Caballeria. Gabriel Sanchez also obtained letters for his brothers, Alonso and Guillen, which Ferdinand approved and had some difficulty in 1498 in preventing the tribunal of Saragossa from seizing and suppressing them. There was even more significant recognition of the appellate power of the Holy See in the case of Gonzalo Alfonsi, defunct in 1493. The Consulta de Fe was unable to reach unanimity, and, in place of referring it to the Suprema, the consultors referred it to Alexander VI, who, by brief of August 13, appointed the Bishop of Cordova and the Benedictine Prior of Valladolid to decide the case, at the same time inhibiting the inquisitors from further cognizance. The year 1492 saw the conquest of Granada achieved and the death of Innocent VIII. The one event greatly increased the reputation and influence of Ferdinand, and the other placed in the papal chair Rodrigo Borgia, better known as Alexander VI. Both men were unscrupulous, but the political situation brought them into close relations, and the services rendered by the king to the pope, or still more perhaps, the disservice which he could render, made the latter eager to gratify him. In 1494, he confirmed and enlarged the letters of Innocent VIII, prescribing that appeals should be made to the Inquisitor General and not to the Holy See. To render this effective, he commissioned, as we have seen, one of the Inquisitors General, Francisco de la Fuente, as appellate judge to hear all cases. The brief of appointment, November 4, 1494, shows in what a tangled condition these matters have been brought by the shifting and shiftless papal policy, governed alone by the expectation of profit. It recites that Innocent VIII, at the instance of Spanish suspects of heresy, had committed their cases, both original and appellate, to various auditors of the sacred palace, where they remained pending for lack of evidence not obtainable in Rome. Wherefore Innocent had evoked them all to himself, but had appointed no judge to hear them and no further progress was made. Besides, under their commissions, the said auditors had issued letters compulsory, inhibitory, and citatory on inquisitors and other officials, in consequence of which they were under excommunication, and against this they appealed. To put an end to these dangers and scandals, Alexander therefore evoked anew all these cases to himself and committed them to La Fuente 
together with all arising in the future, granting him full power for their final determination. End of Book 3, Chapter 5, Part 1